podcast series that focuses on big data and analytics and the latest trends in the digital world. I'm your co-host, Jeremy Roberts, and with me is my co-host, Samir Khan. Hey, Samir. Hey, Jeremy. How's it going? What's up? Very good. Fantastic, man. School starting up. Kids going back to school. Um, School season. We should start seeing demand rise. Exactly. And it's not only retail demand rise, but people get more serious because Q3 is coming around. The the end of Q3 is coming around really fast, and you're noticing, oh, my revenues aren't as high. So, you know. Yeah, and that's a a typical thing, especially in the B2B technology world. It's pretty... uh, uh, slow during the summer. Well, 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 yeah, what's interesting is that this time of year, compared to like January, February, and stuff like that, this is for an analytics professional, this is the time of year when it's very important for you as, a, as an analytics professional to not make the common mistakes, you know, because what you're going to have to do is work with your marketing, finance, IT, sales, e commerce teams to make sure that they have a true understanding of the health of your business because with end of Q3 coming around in about a month and a half and going into Q4, you're going to have to make some very, um, you know, very quick decisions on how to pivot to make those goals for the end of the year. Yeah. And that's, it's a double whammy because you're not only planning for the goals for this year, you're also planning for the next year's budgeting and all those things. Yes. So, yeah. I completely agree. So, 15 extremely important data and analytics mistakes to avoid. It's going to be a fun one. Great. So, yeah, I love it. Let's yeah. talk about that because I think it's extremely important that we are talking about this now because uh, from our experience and from talking to others and being in the industry for long enough, uh, essentially it's a collection of things that we have noticed, experienced, and uh, mm-hmm. identified that we think that uh, most of the time, you know, people just tend to think that it, it's minimal it will have a minimal impact on the performance of the analytics of solutions right or or your analysis itself but i think these are extremely important in the way that it's going to shape you know, not only your company's future but also your career and your future uh, of your analytics organization so yeah Absolutely. let's jump on sweet let's go number 1 deprioritizing of business outcomes over Analytics projects. That is a that's a big one. That's a big one right there. <laughs> Just start with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's very interesting one because I think, uh, and this is a typical habit when organizations get a lot of requests, and especially if it's a decent size organization and you have a decent size analytics and operations team, uh, you tend to get lost in the day to days, right? So there is always mm-hmm. a request going to come to you, like, hey. I need to look at the data in a specific way. I need this particular visualization of my mm-hmm. data set. Uh, I'm having a problem accessing my reports. Can you give me an account? There's a lot of regular housekeeping items. Fire uh, drills, custom fire, reports. Yeah, those, fire yeah. drills from uh, senior leadership, custom yeah. reports, all of that it falls into one place. And what happens is these starts to become a project in itself, right? So right now, you know, my situation is like I have – more, I would say 80% of the requests that are coming are mostly housekeeping items and they tend to yep. become big projects in itself because, you know, some of them could get really complex and we have to leverage IT and all the other departments to sort it out. But then 20% is, which I think should be the 80% of the focus for most teams, which we are trying to do here is focusing on business outcomes, focusing on 
what exactly is going to drive the next uh, set of growth for the company? How are we going to improve the performance of marketing? How are we going to change things that is essentially going to make an impact, a positive impact on the close rates, mm -hmm. uh, you know, velocity of the lead? So all those business outcomes, generally what happens is, and this is from also experience, we start to deprioritize those business outcomes just because we want to manage these tons of uh, analytics projects that takes yep. a lot of time. Yeah, and a lot of that is due to a few different things. And usually when I do um, speaking um, uh, speaking opportunities, when I do my presentations, there's usually two things. And, uh, you know, one of those is, is this idea that you get all these fire drills coming in and craziness happening, and then everybody thinks, you know, I, I need to um, – you know, I need help with this. I have all these projects. This is most important. And then you have that kind of prioritization of who has more power in the business, right? Yeah. And they kind of force you to have to stray away from what you're trying to do. And the second thing is, you know, every year when you're creating that, that annual plan for the following year, you know, it almost seems like most of your time is spent on trying to come up with new and innovative ways to drive growth for your business. But at the end of the day, you're struggling to actually even start working on those things because there's so many problems and those problems also stem from having tools that just aren't good enough. No, I, and I we're completely talk about agree. That later. Like, I think that's, yeah, that's yeah. a very good point that you brought up because uh, I think, uh, you know, essentially the, the functional role of the analytics team is to drive business outcomes, right? And if yep. that's not happening, then everyone who's whoever the, the leader of the team is and uh, looking after the data and analytics, they should reconsider uh, and, you know, kind of rejigger their team and try to focus back on mm -hmm. the business outcomes because there's no shortage of analytics projects uh, in the organization. There's always going to be something going on. But again, if you really want your group to expand, you want to make a business case for addition of team members or tools or technology or data sets, then you have to focus on, the business outcomes. Completely agree. Very cool. So let's, uh, let's actually jump to number two. Number two is a good one. It's not having a centralized approach to analytics management. And, and I think for me that that starts with this idea of like a center of excellence. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and if you look at a lot of companies who do um, analytics well, you know, what they do is they create a center of excellence. It's not really just having a single person that everybody reports to, but really just a, a strong cadence between different groups, having, you know, representatives of different parts of the organization that are responsible for analytics management and having them have a same seat at the same table where those discussions can, can be, um, can happen on a consistent basis and everybody can be in the same understanding of what needs to happen, what's prioritized and really how to centralize things. So, you know, there's not one team who's reporting one thing and the other team says, no, 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 you're about five points off. Yeah, and that's, you know, I, I kind of have a same tangent but in a different outlook for this one. Uh, what I have seen from my experience being in parts of different teams and leading analytics and demanding, uh, mm -hmm. generally when you start an organization, you know, specifically if you're starting a marketing organization, you tend to have analytics as a, small functional unit within a demand generation group, right? So it may be... Or an add-on, right? Yeah. It's not even just a small one. It's like this add-on thing that you, the, the right. company finally put... Absolutely, put, yeah. Know, so it's a small group uh, or maybe a couple of people 
they're reporting to a demand generation lead and they're running analysis and doing things. But then once you start seeing the opportunity and once the company has really aggressive goals and they start to grow, I think that's where the centralization of analytics comes into picture because then what's going to happen is if you have a siloed group working in one specific set of demand generation, then generally most of the work that analytics team will do will be focused on that particular team's needs, right? So it's not going to be essentially central. It's not going to be a a layer inside of marketing. It will be nope. siloed to that team. And that's what I've noticed, you know, when when these things happen, it's time for the the leadership and, you know, all the different leaders in the group needs to consider that, hey, now it's the time for this uh, operations or analytics group to be a separate entity in itself and reporting directly into CMO uh, so yep. they can function and expand and grow based on their needs. So they're not tied to the need of that particular team that they're a part of. So it's very critical to have a centralized approach to analytics that can serve all the different segments of marketing um, in, independently. I'm talking specifically about marketing analytics. But if you think, yep. say, the same concept for sales operations, financial operations, HR operations, like all of those areas needs to be centralized. Again, depending on how big or small your organization is, like, you know, if you're, if you're like a three, four person team, then I'm not saying you're going to go create a completely different analytics department. <laughs> yeah. But if you're a decent sized organization and you know the needs are becoming larger and you want to function independently and serve everyone equally, then you have to have the centralized group. Completely agree. And the thing is for the people in the audience, you know, Samir's example here is, 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 you know, comes from not only his personal research on best practices and listening to experts, but it's also from, you know, testing this out at a few companies. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you, you've seen it work well and you've seen it not work, you know, and, and I, I think that centralized approach really is the way to go. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. So, uh, number three, this is a, <laughs> this is a good one, right? Too much data and not enough insight. And, you know, I, I remember examples of, you know, typical fire drills. And I, I feel like it, some jobs that I had, my life was filled with fire drills. <laughs> That's all I did was just <laughs> deal with fire drills. You know, it was 52 weeks in a year. I did fire drills like 40 weeks out of the year, which is awesome. But, you know, a lot of times you'll, you'll work with your analytics group and they'll come back with a 30 page presentation with slides on all the 30 pages. And there's not enough, uh, analysis on there, insight to be able to take action. And a lot of what it's doing is just creating more questions and, and creating more problems and then forcing you to have to dig deeper and deeper. And that could just be, you know, a, a, a product of bad tools. It could be a product of, um, the wrong KPI set up. It could be, you know, a product of, of a non-centralized approach to your analytics management. I mean, it could be a lot of things. Yeah, and you know, that's a that's a great way to look at it. And also, we kind of mentioned this in our previous podcast, which is five actionable lessons from a big data survey. Uh, mm-hmm. We talked about the variety of data is more important than the velocity or volume. So when we talk about like too much data, essentially, we're not just talking about the volume, which I'm, you know, which we all know how significantly is growing. Like IDC predicts 1.7 MB of new data will be created every second by 2020 which Scary. is like 40 zettabytes. I don't know what zeta means, but uh, <laughs> so uh, I think that's one big problem, but also at the same time, the variety, like there is data coming from call center. There is data coming yeah. from 
your web analytics platform, there is CRM data, uh, there are social media data, there's all sorts of data coming and just making the case more complex. So I think uh, what's happening is, you know, people spend tend to spend a lot of time on trying to figure out where the data is coming from and how much data is available. And essentially, the whole project becomes a sort of a data project and not necessarily an actionable insight project, which I think, which is what we're seeing here. Uh, like a data just, pool. Yeah. You it, know, a data pool project. Remember that, uh, remember that study, the, the IBM study, um, talking about what is the average number of tools that a marketing department works with? Absolutely. Is that 30, yeah. 35? Yeah. So, so yeah, so that they're right there. We know that there's this, uh, you know, this is essentially what the situation is. What I think, you know, if you go back to our, the number one mistake to avoid the first one, which is deprioritization of business outcome. It kind of connects to number three. If we mm-hmm. have prioritized our business outcomes correctly, then we know what types of data sets we need to work with, uh, what are the different platforms that we're going to interact with, and what will be the essential outcome that we should come out of that, you know, what should be a recommendation. So it, it's very tightly connected with the prioritization of business outcomes so that we don't focus just on the variety and velocity of data. We focus on the actionable insights. hundred percent. I mean, a thousand percent agree with that. I mean, if you think about the actionable, the, the things that are actionable, like the KPIs that most matter, and let's just do very quick math here. If you have 35 different tools and you're pulling out an average of three KPIs per those 35 different tools, that's 105 different KPIs that you're looking at in order to make an informed decision. That's just crazy. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. Let's uh, jump to number four here. Um, This is a good one. Performing analytics on raw data alone, just on raw data. And this is, I think this is a very uh, critical one. And this I come across consistently in, you know, again, going back to too much data, variety and velocity of data. So what happens is because the data is being created with such enormous pace, uh, it's mm-hmm. really hard to keep up. And then what happens is essentially once you start seeing the data, you want to jump and take action on the data right away uh, before going through the entire process of extract, transfer, and load. So you can start cleaning the data you can make the data usable. You can, you know, connect the data to the data warehouse, which I think, you know, it's more of a BI role and sort of an IT role. So I think this is where the balance comes in. Like once you're building your analytics infrastructure, you want to leverage your IT department. IT department is your liaison. They're your friend. They're your allies in this process. So you're not yeah. spending a significant amount of time making this data usable. You're leveraging their help to provide the infrastructure so they can, you know, set that cadence up where you have the right technology, right infrastructure. So then when you get the data, uh, you get the data in usable format. And I'm not saying like you completely leave it up to them because you you know the data, you know your data well more than enough than anybody else. So working with them in tandem and making this data operationally usable and then taking actions on it. Because if you just take the raw data and start taking actions on it, you know there could be a lot of cases where you have null values. Like that's one of the big ones, yep. especially if you have null yep. values. Uh, it's really hard to solve for null values. Like, you know, even data scientists you know, have this problem when the null values is considered one of the major issues because, you know, it's really hard to understand, like, what do you do with it? Like, should we keep it? Should we take out of the data? Should we normalize it? There are lots of things you can do. The other consistent problem that I've noticed in terms of the raw data is 
the structure of the data, right? So if, if you get your call center data, which is like acoustic data, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to convert to a text format? Do you have any text exactly. analytics? Uh, same applies for Twitter data. Although you do a lot of uh, Twitter analysis. So how are you going to take that data? Sentiment value and so on. Yeah. yeah, exactly. How you take the tweets and convert to a readable textual format so your machine learning algorithms can go uh, and solve for it. So I think it's... Again, that that number fourth is performing analytics on raw data. It's dangerous uh, because it, it is. Yeah, it could provide you insights that could lead you in a completely wrong path. And 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 let me append that with this idea that you know you're creating insights, and the last thing you want to do is is say, well, you know, I, I've I've worked with their IT department to create automated reports and so on. I'll come visit this in six months. No, six yeah. months is way too long. I mean, way too long. You're, <laughs> you're looking at uh, macro macroeconomic trends. You're looking at seasonality. You know you're looking at um, you know uh, you know compet- the competitors coming into your space. You know through different channels and so on. Everything to change. So the, the advice there too is run an audit, build a cadence to run an audit of your data mm-hmm. in your reports and your KPIs, and consistently look at that. You know, don't spend too much time. We're not talking every week here. Absolutely. But, you know, w- w- with with something of value. So, good. Cool. Uh, number five, overlooking key takeaways and making judgmental decisions. I like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a very interesting one because I think, you know, in our career, we have come across that in many different ways, right? Yes. And this is typically – so I think this, you know, the keyword here is balance, right? So I'm not saying that an experienced person, an experienced leader should have a say in terms of the direction we want to go with a specific project or the company itself. Mm-hmm. But it, when we have a team that is responsible for identifying the trends using data, that is responsible for identifying the key takeaways, we need to leverage it to a full potential. Uh, and I'm not saying yeah. that, you know, if the data tells you that the company is not going to grow, you just stop and, you know, start worrying about like, hey, what are we going to do about it? You definitely use your hunch. You definitely use your experience. You use your vision and direction to guide the company. But what we're saying here is don't make too many judgmental decisions once you have the data, what it tells you. And we have seen a lot of companies go in a completely negative direction because they started using judgmental decisions and they didn't rely on their data. And, and the judgmental decision can also be from a limited scope of that data and hyper-focusing on a, on a very finite group of data and not looking at how that data's attribution, you know, affects other, you know, other tools. Other parts of other the business. Channels, yeah, absolutely. Other parts of the business. And, and, you know, the best example I, I can give is, you know, from a, you know, we, we use this example for companies to work for, you know, there was a hyper-focus on ROI and we, we looked at the, you know, our, our goal was a 1.5, you know, to one ROI, which is common and average. And we're stack ranking all the different marketing channels that we're using. And to be able to find some that were, you know, below 0.5, you know, really giving us a, a terrible return on investment. Mm-hmm. But looking at your marketing mix modeling, it, it was not something that you wanted to increase your investment with. So they decided to pull, um, pull budget from it. But they pulled too much. And so the idea there was, you know, you don't understand how the performance of one channel affects the performance of another. 
and too much money was pulled out and it nosedived the rest of the business. Yeah, and it's a very interesting point that you bring up and what you just said is granted that the ROI for one particular channel, it's not optimal. What we need to understand is how this channel impacts your your lead funnel or your lead yes. progression funnel or your customer's journey, right? Because, yes, yes. and this is exactly the conversation that we have on our day-to-day basis. Like we know these are, there are areas where we know that they're not performing optimally, but we also know, and we have done some analysis to show that they are somehow impacting the overall progression of the lead from one stage to the other and from, uh, for the opportunity from one stage to the other. So, Absolutely. Yeah. That's where also the judgmental decisioning comes in is not just looking at the data in a small segment, but also looking at the big picture view as well. 100% agree. Cool. This is a, this is a funny one. Um, I wouldn't say funny, but I, I think this is a common one. And I'm not going to say this is common towards just small businesses or, or big businesses, enterprises. This is common with everybody. Um, number six, Taking too long to switch from old to new analytics platforms. Everybody's guilty. Everybody's guilty of this. Everyone is guilty of this. And, and, and the I thing think, is, every yeah, yeah go, every go time ahead, you go, go to ahead. these, no, I'm saying every time you go to these conferences, you know, you're sitting there inundated with these new tools and new analytics platforms, and, and you get excited. You know, you go to these conferences and want to come back and say, "Let's go buy this. Come on, let's go adopt this." But that's not also the methodology. You know, the, the method, it, it, there's a science to this. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's, I think it's a combination of art and science. I think the marketing yep. stack, which I can speak to more, uh, it, it, you need to define what your marketing stack is. You know, how do, how you want to shape your marketing? What are the different components? What are the different products? Uh, yep. are the products are, something that's going to make your data visualization easier or there are products that's going to allow you to make the data available. Like there are different types of products for each and everything. Now the challenge is sometimes the organizations have some legacy solutions in place that they are holding on to for whatever reason, like maybe they are just comfortable with it. Maybe they're just large investments. Yeah. You know. Large investments. Or maybe they're hesitant that other people will not like it. You know, I've seen that as well. Like, so we want to make sure that we don't take too long to switch from legacy solutions to a new solution that is in place. Because first off, you spend money on that new solution that's already in house. And you know, if you already brought, bought in the solution, you either built it or bought it. And then second, you have already built all the customizations that your company need. You have taken into consideration the requirements from the different stakeholders. Now you're just waiting and waiting and waiting somehow to magically that new solution will take over and the old solution will, will be, you know, removed. So Magic. I think that's where yeah. it needs to happen quickly. Like once you know you have enough information and the stakeholders buy in and, you know, you don't absolutely, I'm not going to say like 100% of the stakeholders will say yes. As long as you have the majority buy-in and you know that this is going to be better for your organization, it's going to provide much better and robust analytics, then let's just switch over. Let's fifth the switch. Don't wait too long. Yeah, and there's a lot of considerations in place. and A lot of it is what, what is your goal? You know, is your goal truly um, integrated analytics or integrated data across channels or is it journey visualization? You know, is it, is it scalability? Is it, is it a tool that where you can start adding on capabilities to be able to scale to the potential growth of your company over the next two to three years? There's a ton of considerations. Yeah. 
and I'm sure you and I can do an entire podcast just on those considerations. So, um, food for thought. Yep. Cool. Let's, uh, jump to the next one. This is, uh, I like this one, right? Um, not communicating the actionable insights clearly and frequently. What are your thoughts on that? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, a lot of a lot of this is, is a lot of this has to deal with kind of your, kind of your methodology and, and, and where that analytics team sits within the org. And, and for me, you know, sometimes when you have an analytics team that really is just an, an appendix of, you know, let's say the marketing department and they're just kind of a subset of an, analysts, you know, a lot of times being able to identify and communicate those really true, meaningful pieces of data don't really come off and, and, and they're not really pushed. You know, a lot of those teams all they do is just focus on, I did my work, I got out my, my daily report, and I'm done. And, and what it ends up being is you're not able to create reports that create insights that actually have action on it. So you end up spending more time explaining what you need to do, not really understanding what all the different departments that you work with do, but you end up spending all this time trying to explain what you need to get done or what needs to get done. And you end up just causing more problems and causing more confusion. Yeah, and I also think that uh, you know where we're coming on this one particularly is repetition, right? If you yep. have done the hard work, if your team has done the hard work, you have really solid uh, recommendations, then you need to follow through. Uh, because one, if let's say if you did the presentation and everybody's bought in and you you are you know like happy, like you know your analysis worked through. But now you need to follow through to make sure that the analysis is turned into action because people are busy, right, generally. And, you know, people get tend to lost in their day-to-days. Uh, in, you know, they might go in different directions. They might have different priorities. Things may change. People may change uh, in terms of, like, new leadership may come in. And so from an analytics leadership standpoint, it is the responsibility of the leader of that group to push this forward to the leadership again and again. So then it got latched onto, and then people use that recommendations to take action. So that's where we're like we really think that once you have a powerful recommendation set of recommendations, powerful set of actions, you need to push that through consistently with uh, a laser targeted focus. So then you know that you can see the results from your actions. Because typically, it, it, I was just going to end with saying yes, like sir. typically what happens is once you have an analytics and you send it over to a specific department and you don't follow through to see what are the actions taken, you don't get satisfied from what you did, right? You don't, you don't know what's going on. You don't know if that's good or bad, if you want to do that in future, uh, mm-hmm. and if that's going to benefit the organization. So that kind of that satisfaction of your analytics is not there. Well, it's, so the communication there actually goes two ways. So it's not only communicating the actual insights and clearly and frequently to your stakeholders, but also getting feedback and having them communicate back to you whether those actionable insights created a positive return on investment or a positive outcome. That's you true. Know, and, Absolutely. And, and I think it's important to be able to, to – and it's difficult because that doesn't really always fall into the personality of the owner of the analytics team. So th- this is something that we call a unicorn, right? Great. Yep. Cool. Um, uh, this is a good one. Uh, number eight, jumping to conclusion without statistical confidence or statistical significance. 
you want to give some thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think this is also extremely important and it gets to the sophistication pieces, right? So once you have um, a, a great example is if you're testing one particular messaging versus the other on your creative. Uh, and then you see that your, uh, you know, whatever solution you're using to understand your A versus B or C, uh, if you think that one is performing better than the other, uh, you get excited. Like, especially this happens very frequently when this test is just launched. You see that, you know, the one that you hoped was really performing better than the other, and you want to mm-hmm. quickly launch that as your success criteria, and you want to push that creative forward without taking into consideration uh, the the possibility that the other might exceed the previous one. So there's always that cadence where you want to know a very high confidence that you have a winning creative, you have a winning message that you want to put out in your uh, campaign that has a better chances of conversion, but it has to be backed by statistical confidence. So you want to know, like, you know, you should be confident enough that this data is something that you're going to use. That's one thing. The other thing is, even in the general day-to-day analysis, when we decide to uh, identify what are the different impacts that you're having on your marketing budgets or your marketing performance, you want to take into consideration the confidence index. So you are predicting that with a higher accuracy, so your algorithms are more sophisticated and you're doing comparative analysis of your mm-hmm. algorithms with the answers uh, that you had in the training set. So then that way you can know that, okay, this is good. I want to move forward with it. And I'm really confident because I've done all these types of data validation. And I think is, uh, let me add to that with regards to a, a little side note on career advice. You know, a lot of times what Samir gives a fantastic example of this. What I want to say is that in order to be an effective um, analytics professional, to be able to give statistical confidence in what you're doing, to be able to communicate that across the stakeholders of, of the company, you need to know a little bit about finance. You need to know a little bit about marketing channels that you support. You need to know a little bit about e-commerce funnel and everything because you have to be able to translate that confidence, that statistical confidence into language that meets the needs of your stakeholders. If you can't do that, you're basically working in a vacuum. Absolutely. Yep. Because like I said, if, if you don't speak the language of finance and finance is all about return on investment and EBITDA and bottom line and stuff, they're not going to understand what you're talking about. Great. Yep. Cool. Uh, here's a, here's a typical one. Um, I think this happens to absolutely everybody is number nine, not focusing on the funnel progression metrics, but really focused only in the top and the middle part of the funnel. And I think a lot of this goes towards, you know, companies that have, you know, attribution models built out and they really focus on first click and last click attribution only, but don't really look at anything else. They're not really building out a true funnel and looking at those metrics through the funnel and, and how, uh, whether you're, you're looking at your marketing channels and how they convert or whether you're looking at progression through a website from, you know, landing page into cart and how those convert through a uh, funnel progression. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think uh, one of the things that, uh, from my observation, you know, working in a variety of different projects, generally people tend to worry about the top and the middle of the funnel, top and the bottom of the funnel, right? Mm-hmm. What are you adding to the top of the funnel? How much traffic are you driving? How many campaigns are live? 
uh, how many leads you're creating, what's your marketing budget. And then we worry about like, okay, what's your ROI? What's your conversion? Yep. Uh, how many uh, opportunities have been created? How many deals have been uh, created from it? But then we tend to forget what happens in the middle. Like, okay, mm-hmm. what, what happened to those leads that you created the last quarter? Where are they sitting now? Uh, are they moving down the funnel? Before you start adding a new pipeline of leads, are salespeople following through those leads and driving them all the way to conversion? Maybe you're driving the leads that are just sitting there in a specific stage for a long time, so you need to tweak the funnel and push the leads forward. So it's, again, it, you know, not focusing on the funnel progression metrics and the velocity stages uh, in the lead pipeline is detrimental to your outcome even if you're focusing on the top, the middle of, on top, the bottom of the funnel. Absolutely. And there, there are, there is an art and science to funnel management too. So this can be an absolute whole other topic, uh, you know, podcast that Samir and I can focus on. So let's keep that as food for thought. That's a good Absolutely. one. Yep. Good okay. One. Num- yeah. Number 10. I, I love this one. This is, um, I get a hoot out of it when I'm in meetings. Um, and I've made the mistake early in my career and I almost feel like I do a good job of this now, but I love this one. Picking the wrong charts for your presentation. (laughs) Last thing you want to do is you're in a room with about 10 people and 15 people, you know, senior management and stuff like that. And you're trying to explain something and the chart just doesn't explain what you need to, what you're, what you're trying to solve for. You know, all it's doing is just creating more questions. You know, it's a fantastic one. Yeah, it is. And it's pretty straightforward, right? If you're trying to communicate a particular trend, but you're trying to show the trend in a bubble chart format, just because you think the bubble charts are really cool, uh, that's not going to solve for it. Like you need to have a specific type of chart to show the trend. Uh, you know, it could be an area map, it could be a trended simple bar charts or line charts. Uh, so that's where I think it's, it's more of a common sense, but it also more of uh, experience. And I would say getting... Uh, you know, passing it to your peers, passing it to your colleagues and getting their take on like, hey, does this make sense? Is it providing you the insights really quickly or am I missing something? It's always helpful to do that. And another simple way, like if you have a specific data visualization tool such as Tableau, Mm -hmm. if you go in Tableau, Tableau generally has a, does a really good job of providing you quick uh, information on the charts that you should be using to present your data. Uh, another one that I can think of is so visible. It's an app, I, it's an iPad app that you can download and start looking at the charts, and it will give you automatic recommendations for your charts. But always try to use the best possible charts to present the data and outcome and story that you're trying to paint. And the best thing to do is look at an old presentation or an old set of charts that were used for the targeted audience that you have. You know, there are some people who only prefer bar charts. You know, some people, it sounds like such a simple concept, but, you know, go look at the presentations that were acceptable. And a lot of times, you know, there are some leadership out there who want to cram as much data into a single chart. You're talking, you know, you know, a third axis and you're talking about multiple, you know, um, data types within a single chart and so on, a very complicated graphic. But if that's what they want, go back and uh, relearn Excel, right? Got to figure it out. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Um, this is a good one. Number 11. So spending too much time 
in picking the right analytics tools. So I guess for this example, Samir, are, are we considering that the person is in a small to medium-sized business and they have existing legacy tools and there there's an opportunity to go out and RFP for new tools? I think it, it applies to all sorts of organizations. Like even in the big organizations where they already have uh, analytics infrastructure, there's always a need for a different type of tool that can provide them a different types of analytics. And now with all these upcoming startups uh, that are focusing on data analytics and visualization, there's always going to be, a, you know, there's always going to be that shiny new tool that you think is going to yeah. solve a bunch of your problems. So I think this where, so I think we can easily talk really quickly on this one and move on. I think the idea here is once you have, you know, understood the market when you have done your RFP analysis compared like a good set of five to six different tools and yep. uh, done uh, your due diligence, uh, let's not spend too much time on saying like, okay, which one should we go with? Sometimes, you know, especially if there are multiple stakeholders involved, it could take like six months to a year just trying yes. to figure out the right solution, which is a complete waste of time. Yeah, the, the trick is to go to your procurement team and go to your management team who's going to be responsible for that tool and just figure out what their goals are and go from there. Right. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Number 12, running analytics and silos without proper integration. I, I think, you know, this comes back to even number two, where we talked about not having a centralized approach. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a lot of times, you know, it, it depends on the size of the company, but you know, this even comes back to this idea of, you know, Performing analytics on raw data or not having enough insight, just all the other essential or the extremely important data points that we talked about is just when you, when you're analyzing data within silos and you're not properly integrating, you're actually, the, the hard part is you're not making informed decisions based on the, the full outcome and the effect of what could happen if you make the wrong decision, but you're also spending more time looking at differentiated data and trying to figure out how it all fits together. The biggest pain point that I had and the reason why a lot of analytics and marketing professionals have multiple screens at their desk is because they have to open up three or four different tools on multiple screens, download that raw data, and try to figure out a tool like a Tableau or simple Excel spreadsheet and upload them into that to be able to find trends. I mean, it's a it's a difficult process, and you're actually hurting yourself by doing this. No, I totally agree. I think you brought up a lot of good points. So. I don't think any, anything particular that I have to add here, but I think the idea, again, goes back to creating, if you have a big data problem, then go create a data hub or data lake and you know try to use that and work with your IT uh, and then perform the integration across multiple segments. Uh, but it is very important that you tie your data together to build a story. Yeah, and, and a lot of it is also going back to the provider, you know, whether it's, Google, IBM, Adobe, you name it, they have use cases that show proper integration across those tools to, to you know, break down those silos. Go and challenge the provider um, to offer you use cases, successful use cases on how that integration can happen and just um, use their expertise to your benefit. You know? Yeah. Cool. Number 13, uh, ignoring use of unstructured data for your analysis. So give me your thoughts on this one. Yeah, I think so. Unstructured data, which we're talking here, is essentially um, you know any kind of data that is not uh, structured in rows and columns, right? So, and it is not available readily. So, for example, your videos, uh, your imagery, acoustic data okay, that comes from sound, 
uh, your Twitter data, like tweets and social mm -hmm. media updates and your all the images that you post on your social media, all of these fall under different types of unstructured data. Now, generally speaking, most of the time that people may tend to ignore it because it is, uh, as I was talking earlier, it becomes like a complex challenge. Like in order for to make this data usable, you have to parse out the data, remove null values, uh, make it more structured in terms of organization of the words that are being used in your tweets, for example. So there are lots of pieces that comes into place when putting the structure to the data. So I would say definitely not ignore it. If you don't have the resources, either outsource it and get the right resource to get your data structured or hire people that can help you structuring the data or leverage IT and BI to make that possible. Yep. Yeah, great explanation. So uh, number 14, so a lack of hypothesis-driven approach and too much data exploration. And a lot of this comes down to, you know, the, the, the basic strategy of, First, asking, what is the goal? It sounds like such an easy concept, but really, what are you trying to solve for? You know, and creating a hypothesis around, you know, what could be the possible outcome of the data that you're exploring. I mean, it's, it's almost as simple as that. You know, without that, you're just going down a long path of analysis that's not going to go anywhere. Yeah, and I think this tends to happen pretty frequently when you give access to tools and analysis. There's always exploratory analysis, which essentially is trying to look into your analytics platform and identify patterns and develop recommendations off of it. So that's what the exploratory analysis was. Hypothesis-driven analysis is you have a set of hypotheses, you set of have a set of uh, sort of you know which I think are business outcomes. Uh, yep. and the possibilities of those outcomes. And you'd have these hypotheses, and then you're looking at the data and trying to validate or invalidate your hypothesis. So yes. this is what we're trying to say. Like Instead of doing a lot more of exploration, which I think is great if you have good enough amount of data, but don't let your hypothetical thinking uh, aside that you're, not, you're just going to focus on exploratory analysis and not worry about the business outcomes to drive results. Exactly. Yeah, and finally here, number 15, um, you know, failing to integrate customer data for analysis. And, and, you know, that goes back to, you know, really talking about, you know, getting rid of those silos, you know, running your analytics in silos without integration. And there's different ways to do it. Some people run a great analysis within their various tools uh, within different channels. But at the end of the day, they're sitting there working with multiple KPIs and they're not really integrating what the outcome of that data is to really identify what is the true effect of the decisions I'm making and how does that affect the bigger picture. And yeah, and I think this is also something that goes back to using your customer's data so then you can have better insights on who your target market is. So I mm -hmm. think the the idea here is uh idea here is to to take your customer data and develop insights so then when you go to market you know what your customers' patterns are. You know what the industries they're from. You know what the employee size is. You know what are the different segments of customers, and you go attack that. Yeah, well, th this has been a great session. This is a lot of information. Uh, we really hope you guys enjoyed this, and please, you can find us um, at uh, www.datacrackle.com and also check out our other podcast, uh, digitaltenant.com. And... Um, you know, we're excited about um, our next podcast with you guys. And uh, thank you, Samir. This was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you.